Texas Tribune Tribcast. We'll talk about the fight over property taxes at the Texas Ledge, the House Speaker's skirmish with a gun rights activist, and Julian Castro's presidential fundraising efforts. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. KSAT 12 in San Antonio, which is once again broadcasting all of the fiesta parades in downtown San Antonio. Watch live from anywhere in the world on KSAT.com. And the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition. Learn why it's time to give our criminal justice system a second look at bit.ly dash time for a second look. Do I have to talk you in your head? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, no, you're such a long Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, April 17th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. I decided not to wear a jacket to this Tribcast. I'm going all Buttigieg on you. <laughs> Excellent pronunciation. You, it used to be all Jim Jordan, which has kind of, you know, it's a little sort of, let me just leave that hanging out there. But I'm going to say I'm going all Buttigieg. Also, do you know what three days from now is? What, Fiesta? Adolf Hitler's birthday. Uh, Evan Smith's birthday. Also, no, that's not. That makes it sound like that's my nickname. <laughs> <laughs> but but those two facts are true. How old are you going to be? I'm going to be 53, mm-hmm. going right. on about 90. All right. Compared compared not to not 53, I'm going to introduce reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Thank you for having me. You are not 53. Uh, I can confirm, fact not 53. Check, <laughs> Probably not even half of 53. Uh, and political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Who appears Definitely to have been born hap- at hap- age 53. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. As always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, I'm going to start with Shannon. Um, Shannon, property tax reform obviously is a huge priority for the state's top elected officials this session, specifically a measure that would require local property tax increases of over a certain percentage to go before voters. That measure had hit a big roadblock in the Senate until this week. Uh, Why was that? Take us back. Why um, was it? In a word, Seliger. Seliger. (laughs) So the Senate— Most powerful man in Texas. (laughs) Yeah. In some way. Um, the Senate passed its version of the property tax reform bill out of committee in February. Ever since then, it's kind of, well, for several weeks, it kind of languished, presumably because it lacked the votes to get to the floor, basically due to this tradition that dates back to the 1950s, I believe. Um, the Senate requires... When Evan was just... <laughs> Speaking of being 53. <laughs> yeah, right. um, the Senate needs the support of 19 senators to bring a bill to the floor. For 19 Republicans, Kel Seliger, the person we referenced at the beginning of the most vocal GOP holdout on the bill. So Dan Patrick lacked one vote. And this was the peril when they made the decision after Patrick came in as lieutenant governor of taking the number of votes they needed from 21 to 19. Right. You only have 19. Right. I think Seliger voted for that, just some trivia. But um, anyway, this all kind of accelerated last Thursday when, according to reporting from Emma Platoff, another reporter here, or I'm sorry, Dan Patrick had a conference call with several um, senators and said that if no deal was reached on SB2 over the weekend, he was prepared to deploy this procedural, quote, nuclear option. The nuclear option. Right, which um, <laughs> it, le- it basically lets him bring the bill to the floor with 16 votes rather than 19. Um, it's not a rules change. It's just a break with tradition. So he did not end up needing, despite threatening the nuclear option, he didn't end up needing it. I had it. visions of him like— uh, Pressing pe- the red button. Like, yeah. No, like uh, what was the film where the guy's on the missile heading— uh, uh, <laughs> What, what? You're the film buff here. Well, I, I'm, I'm 53. Apollo I'm 13. forgetting everything. No, it's uh, 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 go ahead. I'm going to Google it. And Bobby I know. will send okay. it our way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So he didn't need the nuclear option. Um, so Kel Seliger, why did this Republican holdout? Um, and and I think it's worth noting that he's a former mayor. Right. Why did he end up relenting? Well, um, 
you know, it was actually, it, was, it sounds like kind of like a procedural weird, like in the weeds thing, but it was kind of a big deal. We talked to Seliger Friday. He said it was desperate. He said that it really infringed, well, it would, it was not in the spirit of collegiality and deliberativeness that the Senate is known for. Um, but we still went into Monday morning. <laughs> Let's just let that hang out there right. also. Known I know, for. I, I conveyed it doing like, you know, quotes, but. <laughs> Tribcast to air quotes. Yeah. So we come in Monday and, um, I mean, I did, I went to the Senate not knowing really what was going to happen if he was going to need to invoke this nuclear option. Um, Betancourt stands up, signifies that he wants to bring SB2 up for a vote. Seliger gets up and seemingly surprising everyone, gives this long speech, um, pretty impassioned, where he says um, some of what, you know, I said that he said about, you know, this being against the collegiality of the Senate, um, of it, you know, destroying this tradition. And um, he says that he is still a no on SB2, is going to vote no for it. He did, in fact, vote no on it, but that he would vote with his Republican colleagues to allow the bill to be heard, you know, so then Dan Patrick doesn't have to use the nuclear option. He um, Did he think he was owning Dan Patrick on that? Um, you know, he made some remarks that were fairly, you know, about statesmanship, he didn't call out Dan Patrick, um, but I mean, you know, it was he, kind of pointed he was, about him. If he thought he was uh, somehow harming Patrick by preventing Patrick, it's Dr. Strangelove. I was, I was just going to say, of. were you trying to say that Dan Patrick didn't have to go all Dr. Strangelove? He didn't have to go all Dr. Strangelove on us. Um, but so if he thought he was preventing Patrick from executing on this grand strategy, it ultimately amounted to nothing because— Well, he actually—so he— um, he had some of us in his office after the fact, and he basically he was pressed on this very point that you're making, you, you, which is you had, like, did the, you Dan help? Dan Patrick had, had some no, of no, you no, all um, reporters. Seliger. Oh, Seliger. I was like, a text well, Tribune reporter got in the Dan Patrick's office. Dan Patrick did have a gag. <laughs> Where's the breaking news alert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. But anyway, Seliger, he he was pressed on this very point that um, Evan is making, which is that like, didn't you help Dan Patrick win here? And he was saying no. It became clear by Monday. He'd been like hoping for some better angels maybe to appear, um, but. It was clear that, you know, SP2 was moving forward. Either it'd be with the nuclear option or it would be without it. And he was like, you know, that's a lost cause, but maybe I can at least help preserve this one tradition. Right. So that was his thinking. And so what does the bill that passed out of the Senate do at this point? What's the, um, per- what's the percentage threshold right. now and who's happy with it? So it was 2.5%. So uh, basically any, uh, any local property tax increase beyond 2.5% would have to be voted on. Right. So now local voters. Exactly. Yeah. So um, Betancourt rolled out this floor substitute, which basically increases it to 3.5% revenue growth, still below the 4% that they were at last session, but, um, you know, one percentage point increase. Schools are still at 2.5%, and there's one amendment from Pete Flores that they adopted early on, which um, allows for indigent defense costs. Uh, now, I remember a story included. by a smart reporter named Shanid Najmavadi, who, 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 who said that community colleges were concerned about the possibility of having right. to increase tuitions if their community college districts were not exempt. Right. And that did not happen. No. So community, uh, we did two stories, community colleges, hospital districts. They both were exempted from the House's committee substitute. And there were amendments, um, I think Nathan Johnson, Zaffarini were the two that uh, put them forward. They were, they were shot down. Yeah, they were shot down. In fact, like so, so every So the community colleges are not going down. to be carved out. They not, not in the carved. Senate's version. Right. So, Who knows what will happen well, in and conference? That, and yeah. that brings us to the House. I mean, the House hasn't done any of this yet. It was originally expected to take up the bill, I thought, last week. There was some talk that this was going to come up last week. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. What's the plan for this now, and how yeah. might the House's version look different from the Senate's? So the House was supposed to take it up last Thursday. They... Um, I guess we're waiting for the Senate. They didn't pick it up. They postponed it till Monday, and then they announced Monday that they're going to take it up next week, we think. Um, I think they said the 24th, one mm-hmm. week from today, right? Right, yeah, so um, next week on the floor. They've 
you know, already have pre-filed amendments and everything. Um, the House's version is different on a couple of points. First, schools are carved out. They basically say it's addressed in HB3 and in different pieces of legislation that are better able to address the school district property tax system, which is um, extremely complex and kind of different from the, how you talk about property taxes being levied on cities and counties. They've carved out community colleges, emergency service districts, hospital districts, basically everything except cities and counties. Um, there are a couple other taxing units in there, but a lot of them have been taken out. Um, they also have put forward this amendment from Burroughs, the bill author, that instead of having like a static 2.5 or 3.5% cap would tie the revenue cap to, or the election trigger to some inflation. It's kind of like a complicated equation they have going on, but it's basically like an inflation metric. It's indexed. So is there any indication, is this going to be a knockdown drag out till the end? Is there any indication that this, there's going to be some kind of easy resolution between the House and Senate on this? And, and part B, I guess, is does, do we know where Abbott's comes down on this? Abbott's original plan um, from, I think before I was a reporter here, but it, it was a 2.5% constraint on revenue growth. And I think that he, he recently has signaled that he wants schools to abide by a kind of similar constraint on their ability to levy um, property tax revenue. As for the... Yeah, well, I'm just gonna, Patrick, that, you're, you're the, kind of the Abbott whisperer here. Yeah, I mean, us. Abbott's held firm, as I think he said, public, or, uh, confirmed, uh, reaffirmed publicly recently. Mm -hmm. He's held firm on the 2.5% for the, the schools, um, but has signaled flexibility on uh, the rate for other taxing units, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So, um, you know, the sales tax swap, I think, is something we haven't mentioned well, say, yet. This, that is, is, this is really another... The mm -hmm. most politically explosive this is the IED component right. on the this. side of the yeah. road, right? And that's right. there was a big conversation about that on last week's uh, tripcast. But I think my, you know, I guess the question is sort of how do negotiations over raising the sales tax play into any of these property tax deliberations? Well, I don't know that they play into them in any way, in the sense that these are separate issues. They're related, but they're separate. Mm -hmm. It is possible that the HB two SB two, however it goes through the pipe and comes out the other end can pass, the state leaders, Abbott, Patrick, Bonin, can claim victory for having orchestrated a reduction in the threshold, and then the sales tax thing cannot pass, and we all skip merrily through the daisies and don't have a special session. I think the sales tax, I think if the property tax relief legislation did not pass, we would likely, as Lieutenant Governor Patrick apparently has said directly, I think we likely are back here over the summer. Yeah. I think if the sales tax thing does not happen, I think we're not back over the summer. And the sales tax thing has a whole bunch of problems associated with it. Right. Well, about, sales, sorry. Um, well, I think one way to think about it also is that, like, sometimes they describe it as SB2, HB2 being reform, as in it makes a whole host of, like, transparency-related tweaks to the property tax system. It's not and, a cut. Exactly. But exactly. the relief portion comes in with the sales the tax sales swap. A um, couple of questions about that swap on social media. Eric's asking, so who gets the extra money from the sales tax increase? Would that money get passed on to the local entities that are taking a hit from the property tax cap? This is the big controversy. Mm -hmm. And again, you both are in the trenches on this. I am flying at 30,000 feet above. But my sense of this is that the debate now is whether the money would be dedicated completely to property tax relief, the sales tax increase of a percentage point, whether it would ultimately buy down property taxes or would, would it buy uh, go, go to education mm -hmm. or would there be, as I guess Dan Huberty is saying in the House it's version split. of this, an 80% to property tax, 20% split. I, I don't want to say the Freedom Caucus because I don't necessarily mean the literal Freedom Caucus, but Freedom Caucus-like people painting with one brush generally believe that a an increase in the sales tax to buy down property taxes 
is still a tax increase, first of all. I've heard some people say on social media, when do we become the party of raising taxes? Mm -hmm. But at a minimum, there seems to be this sense that if you're going to raise the sales tax, it has got to be 100% dedicated to buying down property taxes. And Democrats, again, painting with one brush, are like hell to the no on the idea that this is all about property taxes. If we're going to do this and we don't like it because it's regressive, it really Mm -hmm. needs to go to education. And they're going to need to get votes out of the Democratic Party in the House to pass this, are they not? Yes, they will. And I think Abbott has signified he'd like it to be a one Abbott said in uh, at least one media appearance yesterday, he's been kind of doing these TV hits around the state to build support for this, that he he wants to see, uh, like the Freedom Caucus-minded members, Mm -hmm. he wants to see all that additional revenue raised by the sales tax to go toward property tax relief. Yeah. So I think it's pretty clear where he where he is on that. And didn't that Betancourt question. come out yesterday and say he was not into this idea? Yeah, I mean, the question, mm-hmm. taking just a few steps back with the sales tax swap, is the big three put out that statement endorsing the plan or floating it, expressing support for it, however you want to characterize it. But it's, it's a little unclear to me um, if they're all as resolved to get this done. Um, particularly in the Senate, you, you've had Dan Patrick kind of downplay this as not, you know, as one option on the table, not exactly make a hard sell for it, I I would say, to put it lightly. And then you had Paul Betancourt yesterday, um, you know, say there's not, I think he said, quote, you know, tremendous appetite for this in the Senate. And he said something like, I'm not voting for a, you know, tax increase, whether it's income tax, property tax, Mm -hmm. sales tax. And so I think there's, um, you know, and I I think that probably what Patrick and and Betancourt, you know, are saying is probably, you know, them just reflecting what they're hearing within the caucus. And so I think there, there certainly could be a question of whether, again, they don't, if I'm correct, they don't need Democrats in the Senate to vote for this. No, I just but think there's they a question to... there that whether they would even have the Republican yeah. uh, unanimity that they need to get. I think done. the problem yeah. is honestly in the House. I think the Democrats mm-hmm. in the House yeah. are going to be yeah. very reluctant to support something. Like yeah. that. It's interesting. We have some uh, city council members listening in on the Tribcast right Oh, tell now. me who. Yes, Does it rhyme uh, with Greg Kassar? Uh, no. Uh, Blake, a city council member from the city of Rowlett, says if a 2.5% property tax cap is implemented, we would expect around a $1.8 million hit. So anyway, interesting. Lots of different things. This, this is, you know, Steve Adler came in and recorded the Point of Order podcast last week, and he was saying absolutely that his cost drivers mm-hmm. were, were high enough that uh, a cap on going to uh, raising property tax revenue without going to voters, plus the likely projected increase in the sales tax and the likely projected increase in the energy transfer fees that they collect, those are their sources of revenue, would put them underwater to the mm-hmm. tune of something like $52 million. I mean, this is the big debate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I think that it's true when people who support this legislation say, well, all you have to do is make the same case to your voters that you need this money that you're making to me on the podcast. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Mm. Well, there's some costs that they keep bringing. They brought it up in the Senate debate about the cost of having these elections every year. Yeah, you know, but I thought they were regularly scheduled elections in November, right? They're well, not like special the cost elections. of educating the voters about what they're voting on. That, I'm not arguing that, for that yeah, point, yeah, but that it's may, come up. The cost of educating voters may be one of those unquantifiable <laughs> things. It truly is. It, it may be like $11 billion to educate everybody, yeah. but all right, fine. All right, uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more Tribcast sponsors. The Texas Corn Producers. Irrigated agriculture is essential to growing our economy, farms, and the future. Discover the strides farmers are making in water and natural resources at watergrows.org. And... The Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers, which stands with Texans statewide who seek access to emergency care without health plan interference. To learn more, visit myemergencymychoice.com. 
All right, Patrick, uh, you had a pretty dramatic story <laughs> last week about the House Speaker uh, attending a uh, GOP fundraiser and ended up seated back-to-back with the uh, same gun rights activist who made waves for showing up at Bonin's house when Bonin wasn't there. Uh, set the stage for us. What was the? Just tell us a little bit about the backdrop to this event. Yeah, the pretext for this was this story that we all wrote about here in Austin. I think it originated in Bonin's, with the local media in Bonin's district, about how this activist, Chris McNutt, but um, was, uh, it was, he was intercepted by DPS officers, intercepted is I think the term a lot of people use, uh, trying to, uh, you know, build support for constitutional carry by going to the neighborhoods and it's in, in, what I hear the actual homes of some of the lawmakers, uh, who he blamed for inaction on it, um, while they were in Austin. So their families were home and they clearly felt, um, threatened. I know that this activist has, you know, claimed he didn't do anything to threaten them, but I think that speaks for itself when your house is placed under DPS uh, surveillance. Clearly, uh, there is some concern there. Is there any way concern. that's not an intimidation factor, given that this is a right. guy who carries around big guns? Right, right. Um, and so that's well, the you know, pretext. But this happens. Yeah. I mean, people go into people's districts right. to block yeah, walk. That's right. different it's, than not going on to their front Do you remember when, just, when the uh, school choice folks block walked in Huberty's district right. and I think knocked on Huberty's door during the debate over vouchers and Huberty was super pissed. I mean, this is a yeah. different, I mean, gun right. rights is different. Yeah, we, than can, we can probably have a separate podcast on the ethics of the, the activism <laughs> right. at play here. But in, right. in any case, these lawmakers and their, and their families right. uh, felt threatened by, by this, whatever this uh, activist was doing in their neighborhoods. Um, and so that was kind of the first chapter to this. And you saw Bonin come out pretty forcefully in response to this and denounce these activists. Well, he and, said that the bill was dead, right? Right, and, and it led to basically, oh. basically led to, Jonathan Stickland, the, the top advocate for this issue at the in the House, declaring the bill dead and also denouncing the tactics uh, that we just described. Basically saying this is not the way to go about this. There's right. no and way so, my bill is going to get through yeah, now. Yeah, so that's the, the backdrop for this. And so last week, the, the Republican Party of Texas had its uh, big annual spring fundraising dinner here in Austin at the, at the JW Marriott. This is a huge uh, annual fundraising opportunity for them. Uh, usually a number of uh, statewide officials attend this year. All the big three were there, the Bonin, as well as the governor, as well as the lieutenant governor, a uh, you know, host of congressmen. And Bonin uh, was ant- was expected to speak at this Right, event, and yeah, I mean, uh, it was in some ways a, an event designed to kind of uh, honor the new speaker um, and, and and give him an opportunity and a platform to, to talk to party donors. Um, and he was set to speak, uh, but he ended up leaving without speaking all because of this incident where, and there's the, the two sides differ on some of the specifics, but from what we can gather and what we put in our story, uh, you know, Bonin was, was heading, uh, to the event or getting ready to head to the event. And he got actually a, a heads up from some fellow, uh, lawmakers saying, Hey, you may end up being seated near Chris McNutt, this activist at this event. Uh, and he may try to confront you. Something may be fishy here. Bonin says that, you know, he reached out to organizers and, and, you know, raised some concerns about this, uh, given that it could be a pretty tense situation. And he was assured that that he wouldn't be put in a, in a situation where, uh, there could be a confrontation. Um, whatever happened, he ended up, uh, not at the same table as this guy, but seated as he described back to back. So if there's two tables, you know, the two seats closest to one another. And so <laughs> thank you for uh, explaining how back to back works. Well, I was actually a little, you know, I was a little, I was a little you know, next do side by side. <laughs> <laughs> Jerk. I can define adjacent <laughs> for you if you want. Um, and just, so anyways, over here. yeah. <laughs> so there, there are varying accounts on this, but basically Bonin and this activist uh, end up in, in some kind of confrontation. Um, 
the activist hands in Bonin's account, uh, hands Bonin a, a, a envelope with a letter addressed to him. Um, Bonin said that he was actually grateful for the letter because he thought that's the way that people should be lobbying their elected officials. Um, but that was, you know, like the one ray of light in all of this because it pretty, you know, pretty quickly, it sounds like it descended into uh, a tense situation where Bonin told uh, Chris McNutt, don't you ever, you know, go to the homes of lawmakers again while you know that they're, um, they're in Austin and their kids are at home and their wives are at home. I think he, Bonin said that he asked, uh, McNutt to, you know, promise me you're never going to do that. Um, people on both sides of the debate say McNutt didn't really say anything was very silent throughout this other than handing over this envelope. Um, but in any case, other people at his table got involved, including, uh, someone who Bonin says, uh, handed him a Kool-Aid packet um, there's been some theories about what exactly the symbolism of the Kool-Aid packet is. I think is. I got chastised in yeah. the newsroom because I was like, what the hell is the symbolism of the Kool-Aid packet? And right. the idea is like drinking the Kool-Aid. So whose Kool-Aid is It could is be evocative drinking? of the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. It could have something to do with keeping Texas red. Um, or something case, to do with Jonathan Sticklin running through a wall <laughs> and leaving an enormous silhouette. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, but in any case, you know, I guess Bonin didn't take too kindly to that. He said he tossed the Kool-Aid packet on the table. Um, you know, there were some words exchanged again, a pretty tense situation. Um, and Bonin ended up leaving early as he told us in the storming story, out, you know, in, in the telling this of, of story the other people. Is the so story. Good. I read this. You posted this story at like two in the morning, right? It was like some late night and I'm like, I'm hallucinating. That's when Patrick <laughs> posts most of his story. I thought I was hallucinating. I read this story. I was right. like every, every aspect of it from the guy's name being Chris McNutt, which is like I have a Thomas Pinchon novel. <laughs> Down to the Kool-Aid and your whole description of the salad. I mean, the details right. in this story yeah. were so good. Yeah, so Biden, <laughs> Biden leaves early. People said he's, you know, the people on the other side of the debate said he stormed out. He he maintains he kept his cool. Um, and one detail that we should get to is that uh, the, these uh, these activists, including Chris McNutt, who had been invited to the um, fundraiser, were invited by a, a top Republican Party donor named Darlene Pendery. Um, she had bought, and she spoke to us for the story and confirmed that, you know, she had bought three tables, which under the kind of fundraising structure for this dinner, you could buy for a table, you could buy uh, for $25,000, you could buy a table and invite 10 people. And so she brought some of these activists more like kind of grassroots types, um, you know, to, to fill these tables. And, and one of them was McNutt. Um, and you had your choice, I think, of elected official that you could put at one of these tables. And, um, you know, she, I guess, had chosen Bonin or somehow Bonin was selected to be at one of her tables. She told us that she arranged for all this before the whole controversy, um, you know, over the over McNutt's uh, going to lawmakers neighborhoods. Um, but she's a big player in, in the party, as we point out in the story. I mean, she, last cycle alone, she spent, you know, over three quarters of a million dollars in, in, in a number of races, tends to back kind of anti-establishment, um, candidates, uh, had backed Bonin's opponent. Yeah. Right? And had given $10,000. Another to, name out of Thomas Pynchon, right? Yeah, the guy's, Damon the Rambo. guy's name was Damon yeah. Rambo yeah. who ran against yeah. Dennis Bonin. Uh, and so, yeah, just Can't a, make yeah, this stuff up. Quite a, quite a scene. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything about this story is amazing, but it, it makes me seriously question the Republicans' party planning abilities <laughs> if they couldn't avoid. There's always, like, when you're planning a wedding, there's always someone you make sure doesn't get seated. Like Aunt Ethel Sony. hates Aunt <laughs> Millie, right? Yep. Don't put them together. This is, I, I, this is like the worst bar mitzvah ever. Well, I mean, okay, so Bonin claimed this was a setup. In your all of your educated opinions— was this a setup? I mean, was this an in, a, an attempt to get Bonin to show his sort of, you know, fiery, um, 
uh, you know, we've oh, you all think s- they wanted Bonin to blow up? Bonin yeah. has been Bonin has been all rays of light and sunshine right. and flowers. Exactly. This do we? And, do they want to make? Do they want Bonin to make a good old fashioned scene? Basically. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the the one thing that Bonin pointed to in, in claiming that it was a setup was that you know uh, McNutt had this envelope with the letter addressed right. to Bonin. So clearly, McNutt was ready for Prepared. some kind of encounter or something mm-hmm. like that. So that leads you to believe that there was some advanced knowledge that they would be coming face to face. You know, I don't know if they were necessarily intending, you know, to to create the scene that they did create. Uh, but I think that some folks involved in it knew that there would be an opportunity. Uh, to come face to face with him, what they plan to do with that opportunity, I, I, you know, I can't speak to it. But um, you know, I think again the way that Bonin, you know, described it, um, I think he, you know, understood that it was some kind of, uh, you know, there was some kind of coordination beforehand, as, as he claims, and and uh, you know, we've done some some confirmation on. Uh, there were some lawmakers, who, you know, fellow Republican lawmakers, who gave him a heads up ahead of time that this could be going down. So. Well, the really good news is that now we are going to have to have a Kool-Aid-themed drink at our Sunny Die party. <laughs> Don't you, I, com- I completely agree. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of disgusting, but, you know, we're going to have to do it. It's like, a, you know, it's like a bad fraternity party, you know. It's like t- Tito's and Kool-Aid. The Texas in a, legislature. In a great big like, plastic garbage can. A bad fraternity party. Uh, okay, Evan, um, State yep. Representative Jeff Leach has had a, a couple of uh, complicated weeks at the Capitol. Um, he's been the subject of two pretty big stories that we've written this yep. in the, over the last week. Uh, walk us through what those are. It was Leach Week. Uh, it's like Infrastructure Week. Is like Shark it Week? Was, it was Leach Week last week. So uh, the first story was, you know, it's quite a moving story. The wife of Representative Jeff Leach, Becky Leach, testified in support of a bill, I believe Craig Goldman, the Fort Worth State Representative, introduced um, – that would have lengthened the statute of limitations for suing over um, an act of, of sexual abuse committed from 15 years to 30 years. The statute of limitations has been by law extended a couple of different times, and this would double the length of time that you have to sue. And uh, in, in the course of this, it came out that uh, State Representative Leach's wife, Becky, had been herself the victim of sexual abuse uh, by somebody she knew and was going to testify at this hearing um, of the committee that her husband chairs about this legislation and in support of it. And that was actually a quite significant moment and story. And so that, you know, that was a big thing. And then the second thing that happened last week with Representative Leach was as the chair of that very same committee, he made a decision to not move forward legislation uh, that was, I believe, Tony Tinderholtz, Mm -hmm. uh, a bill uh, that would have criminalized, uh, uh, women, the, the act of seeking an abortion. Basically, it would have made women who sought an abortion subject to legal action, right? And he, and Up he, to including criminal homicide, which in te- right. under Texas law could be punishable with the death penalty. And Leach, who is a quite uh, ardent a pro-life member of the legislature, uh, nonetheless believed that this was the wrong way to approach the question of how to uh, outlaw or restrict by law uh, access to abortion, and uh, and and as a consequence of that, maybe the DPS officers left Angleton from the Bonin household, and suddenly now had to go over to the Leach <laughs> household. County. Um, it's actually the county, county, Collin County it was Sheriff, Collin County Sheriff's actually, right? Seriously. Who said uh, that they? But, are- but 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 there was some question about the security of the of the Leach homestead mm-hmm. as a consequence of this, and you know, it, uh, you know, th- this these issues, whether it's gun rights or abortion. And others, let's say, on both sides, bring out people's uh, sincere belief and passion and emotions. And uh, 
why, 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 why would people be threatened? I mean, I just find the whole thing to be on anything for any reason. Right. Well, you know, on, on the color within the lines, you guys, right? Don't, don't do that. That's I just, bad. but it was, but Jeff Leach, who was also, you know, team Bonin, he was a member of the Freedom Caucus in the last session and possibly the session before that, but resigned his membership in the Freedom Caucus this last interim. Um, right. I mean, how much of that move was a result of the 2018 election cycle and feeling like, I mean, he said he basically thought that bill was a bridge too far. Le you know? Le Leach's politics are interesting. You know, Le Leach is, I think, I think it's fair to say Leach is an ambitious guy. I also think it's fair to say that Leach viewed the work of the Freedom Caucus last session to have been a little bit too much in the negative too, too. realm. For instance, HB 21, which was the Huberty bill last session to increase funding of public education, uh, which passed overwhelmingly in the House, only one member of the Freedom Caucus out of 12 voted in support of that bill, and that was Jeff Leach. Mm -hmm. Leach had already begun to separate himself, I think, from his fellow members of the Freedom Caucus in, in, pre previously. Um, Leach is a very conservative guy. I don't think anybody's questioning whether Leach is conservative, but Leach believed that from a procedural standpoint and just like morally, he's like, this is not the right way to approach us. Um, I will also point out that, you know, if we have not talked about this today, but I think we'll be talking about it every single week. The Democrats think they have a chance to take back the House next time. They are nine seats away. There are a couple of Democrats who won last time who were probably vulnerable because when you pick up more seats than you anticipate, sometimes people who didn't expect to win and who you didn't expect to win, win. And sometimes those people become vulnerable the next time. And that there are a couple of Democrats who are probably vulnerable, but there are more than enough seats for the Republicans to be at risk in the next election that the Democrats have more than a 0% chance of taking back control of the House. Leach's district is one of those. Um, he won by a smaller margin than one would have expected, and Collin County was a more purple mm -hmm. county than one would have expected. So do I know for a certainty that what Leach is doing is not thinking ahead? I don't. Do I believe Leach was sincere? I do. I know that Jeff Leach was in the news. The, the, the Jeff Leach Google alert went off last time like a hurricane or a tornado uh, you know, warning. It was just beeping consistently. Um, but it was, a, it was an interesting week as far as that goes. And look, the, the nature of what we're, the last couple of things we've talked about, whether it's taxes or the gun issue sort of through the Bonin and Chris McNutt doors or this issue, the abortion issue in particular, there's a really interesting conversation going on in the Republican Party right now about what the right way to approach these issues uh, is and which issue should be first of mind. Remember, this was an issue, a session in which public education and dotted line over to property taxes have roadblocked the agenda to the point that everything else is having a hard time getting any visibility or interaction. And so I think a lot of people are upset that they're not getting their issues out front, right? Yeah, I mean, I think more broadly in the House, based on what happened in 2018 and what could happen in, in, in 2020, there's just such a diminished appetite um, to... Right. Uh, you know, uh, any sharp to objects on the table, right. or even engage with some of these um, fringe elements or far right elements, whether it's on issues of Correct. guns or abortions, than there may have been in, in past sessions. Um, I think that you know, House Republicans, you know, recognize that you know it's but politically or otherwise, it, it's time to stand up to some do, of this stuff and, and do the business of the state, meat and potato stuff, kitchen table stuff, get the hell out of town. Well, I particularly liked uh, Jeff Leach's line uh, after his wife testified, going back to that m issue a moment ago. Uh, he said, uh, this direct quote, I never thought I'd say this to a witness in front of our committee, but I love you. 
which is a pretty, which is pretty funny like, when you start to like imagine all the people who've testified and him, let's like, let's fact check that. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Um, I also think I asked Ross Ramsey about this, and he said he cannot remember any other time in his history of covering the legislature where a uh, committee chair chairperson's spouse has testified before the committee. So I think interesting, um, interesting all all along. Uh, all right, we're going to take just one more quick question before we have to sign off here. Marshall asks, do y'all think George H.W. Bush's grandson will run for Congress? The Tribune had this uh, exclusive it's kind of a nice Abbott narrative, Livingston isn't it? Story. Well, you know, uh, we, there's, there's currently only one Bush family member in politics of the entire sprawling Bush George clan, P. and that's right. P. We haven't talked about the George P. story in The Atlantic that begins with him at, like, Total Fitness Gym or wherever it was. No, I think it was Total Fitness. Well, I don't even know. It was like, I don't know, it was some, it was exactly, he doesn't strike me as an L.A. fitness type guy. He's more of a Total Fitness. Um, Maybe, right? And that's a, that's like a, that that's the kind of district where a noblesse oblige George H.W. Bush associated Republican maybe gets traction. Right. That's like one of, I was going to say, that's like one of the few congressional districts where that could still work. um, You know, where that brand could still, uh, you know, be politically successful. What I will say is there's already this Republican in that race, Wesley Hunt, former army guy, really impressive story uh, involved in business being, he was recruited by uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, um, you know, is already off and running a very strong campaign. And so if a Bush were to get in against him, it could be kind of, I think, a, not I'll say a clash of titans, but you could see a really well, um, bu- action-packed well, the, primary, the Bush, Republican Bush, primary, well, yeah. which is the exact opposite of what Republicans right. need to right. take back that district if they're going to have any chance of taking back the, that the, district. It's going to would test the... Uh, the elasticity of the Bush brand. Sure, yeah. Right, which I think is sure. So we're not going to do Julian Castro's fundraising? <laughs> Alas, Evan, you filibustered too long. We're not going to talk about yeah. it Yeah, oh yeah, I was the problem. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thomas Pynchon over here wasn't the problem. That was it. I think uh, the Julian Castro story will hold till next week. <laughs> yes, uh, that's Un- all unlike the- his fundraising. <laughs> right, there, we're done. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks to KSAT 12, the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition, the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers, and the Texas Corn Producers, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Evan, Shannon, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.